Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made, innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. Hey everybody, welcome to episode number 20 of the Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. Today I'm joined by a return guest, the great Charles Post. He joined me in episode number 11 to talk about his background as a Berkeley trained ecologist and talk about how important it is to think about ecosystems, not just single game animals. There's a lot we can learn from Charles. And there's a lot he has to teach us, but in this conversation we go, we got random, we got deep, but we ended on a, a great conversation around, around the wild horse issue in Nevada. Now, if you're not familiar with that issue, please listen to the full podcast because you will find out that this is an issue for all of us. If you enjoy public lands and you enjoy using them, you're going to want to hear what Charles has to say. Without further ado, here's Mr. Post in episode number 20. Charles, we're live. I um, I have new equipment here. You do. You've seen, and now it is very, looks very. It's like a, a whole thing. It, it has a blender built on top yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, insane. So we're nervous. This again. There's this, regular listeners to the show will know that I did delete one Remy Warren podcast early on. Wow. And so now I have the nervousness with new equipment that like this. Is being recorded, but will never be heard by anyone. <laughs> for better or for worse. For better or for worse. But we're going to just go. <laughs> we're going to go with it. Uh, hopefully, our new equipment is better. The red light looks promising. It is. And it's got a little ticker there. There we go. Ticking forward in time. <laughs> well, uh, where are we at, man? We're in... Uh, just Not that up. I don't know. Yeah. I do know. Just <laughs> tell the listeners where. Yeah, well, we're at my house. Um, my fiance and I just moved into a new place just outside of Bozeman. Mm. So we're looking at... Oh, there's a bird at the feeder. Tell me what kind of bird that is. That would be a female lazuli bunting. Yes. I got to... Yeah, it's fun. So (laughs) you sit here and you... What percentage of birds that land on that feeder do you know the name of? 100%. 
Probably 90. But there's not that many. I mean, I'm new to Montana, you know, relatively. Been here for about two years. Coming from the West Coast, I knew most of the birds. There's a lot more bird species out there. Mm -hmm. But coming to a new place, I'm just kind of seeing what the seasons bring. This is a this is a grand place. This this town. I've been here a few times, but uh, yeah, I have not been to the lake close by here. Highlight Lake, is that yeah. how you say it? Yep. I gotta make sure Highlight. I say it right. Yeah, but I've heard good things. It's uh, a, yeah, it's a cool spot. You're in a good spot, I would say. It's like the closest ocean to Bozeman. So, and why, just, why Bozeman for you originally? Yeah. So, well, before before Rachel, before I met my fiance, um, I was living in Northern California, and my most of my adult life had been kind of focused around ecology mm-hmm. and working in academia and working as a scientist. So naturally, you know, you grow up and you kind of grow in this space, you're drawn to places like Yellowstone. I mean, boy, you know, for wildlife, that's kind of like the epicenter. So I was constantly trying to find ways to get out here. You know, also the fishing's good, the hunting's good. There's that. You know, there's all these, yeah, all these kind of like draws. And then I kind of got my feet wet and thought to myself, you know, one day, yeah. This would be a good place. And then meeting, you know, the woman of my dreams who's from here, born and raised, oh. you know, that oh. kind of like hooked me in. And you're getting married now. This is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Right in the middle of uh, fall, September 15th. Ooh, that's elk season, buddy. <laughs> well, the good thing is, is that we travel so much. It's a, uh, it's a great reason to be home for yeah. that month. Well, let's, I mean, are you nervous about the wedding? I know we didn't talk, we didn't, <laughs> I didn't prep you for this line of conversation. No, you know, I think for folks who are listening out there, everybody's wedding's different. There's different expectations, different needs, different mothers-in-law or mothers <laughs> to cater to. Um, so I think for us, we initially thought like, let's just elope, let's keep it simple. And then we realized we couldn't do that because, you know, the wedding, it is for us, but it's also for our friends and family. Absolutely. And we wanted to make a space where we could include everybody who wanted to be there. And, and so it quickly went from this, like, oh, we should just elope to now we got like 200 people, you know, <laughs> and we want to show them a good time, but we want to do it. And they a, all have to have crab cakes. It seems <laughs> yeah. like. I don't understand why. Finger food is key. At yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, same for my wedding. Yeah. Same thing. I'm like, well, let's go to Dominican Republic. Like, yeah. We'll just like swim and then we'll get married and then we'll keep swimming. Yeah. And we'll go see the turtles. Open a yoga studio. Yeah. It'd be great. It'll be great. <laughs> And then, yeah, then you get to the reality. Like, well, Aunt, Aunt Sharon can't come. She can't get on a plane. She yeah. had a bad hip. Like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quickly I don't want to do that to Sharon. And then, <laughs> yeah. then, yes, then you then you get, you dial it back in a little bit. So that's a natural occurrence. Yeah, but no, it's coming along. Um, we've made a lot of progress. Good. I feel like we just hired a wedding planner, which is clutch for anybody out there. Who's, Ooh, wedding planner. Good deal. Yeah, good deal. So, no, listen, I know, you know, nobody will, will hear this. So if you have any fears you want to <laughs> meet Between me and you. Yeah. Between me and you, you need me to, <laughs> need to talk through anything. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Any, uh, if you're nervous. Yeah. You know, I, definitely Rachel won't. She'll never listen to this. <laughs> so just let it out. Yeah. It's, it's cathartic to <laughs> talk about it. You know, I think, I think the fear is like you want it, you want it to be everything you hoped it would be. Mm. And you want your wife your future wife to kind of have that day. So I, I you know, I know it's going to go well. I know everybody involved has got their heart in it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think we have Conrad anchor doing the words. What? <laughs> yeah. So he'll, he'll tee he'll us up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is he going to like propel in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, four easy payments of nine ninety nine. 
for wow. 100 for a years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I say you could live stream it on Instagram. You get a nice following. <laughs> yeah. It'll be nice. No, it should be good. I, Rachel and the Lows um, grew up together. Conrad's been a, been oh, a big wow. part of her life. Um, they climbed an alley together and done a bunch of cool things. Wow. So he's uh, yeah, he's been a really cool kind of like mentor and what a cool person. Yeah, I've met him just briefly. Probably wouldn't even know if he's like, hey, Ben O'Brien. Be like, I don't know that is. <laughs> Who's that guy? He has security like pull you away. Yeah, like Ben. <laughs> Step back. But he did one time Dremel tool one of my Yeti Ramblers with his signature. No way. I can say that. How much did you sell that for? Uh, it's on sale right now. <laughs> if you're listening to this. Well, click the link in the profile. Yeah, click the link in the profile. <laughs> Whatever you think it's worth. <laughs> Some people may like, why did that guy ruin your Rambler? <laughs> no, it was Conrad Anchor. That's like, I haven't signed many things. Whenever I do, I'm like, well, now you have a 12-year-old signature. Yeah, but like it's on just, now I just is. wrote on your thing. <laughs> You don't I'm want not, that. As a kid, though, signatures are a big deal. Totally. Yeah. I don't know why. Somewhere along my life, I'm like, here's a guy just writing on my stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't write on my stuff. <laughs> Especially like sports sports stars and things like that. Like, yeah, and then they write on your forehead and you're like, why? I'm like, why? Why did you do that? I like that part. <laughs> I feel connected to you. I think, you know, speaking of signatures, though, I think there's something to be said for like whether or not you get the signature, like making that step towards like a mentor or a hero, yes. you know, and just having the chance. I mean, I remember in grad school, my advisor, she always said like, you'll make more progress in the space by knocking on doors and shaking hands and being curious yeah. than you will with like a straight A or an epic paper or good research. Yeah. I think you find most people are good people, especially if you sh- share a passion with them or whatever. Most people are just good. Totally. Yeah. And know? they, f- they feed off passion. I think that's, what's so cool about your podcast and getting to know you is just that I feel like a lot of the conversations that you've had on your show come from a space of passion, you know, and mm. come from a place of, of, All of that. curiosity and like wanting to learn. It's not, you know, I I'm drawn to those narratives that come from a place of, of curiosity as opposed yeah. to, you know, let me tell you how it is. Yeah. And it's conversations are good. I always, I've said this many times, but it's like you get off of a good podcast where you're sitting with somebody, we're just sitting at a table in your kitchen or dining. This is a dining room. I'm not good at naming house rooms. Um, and it's just, it's just like we're hanging out talking. Totally. And when I was telling my wife about it, she's like, why do you like it so much? Because I was excited for coming to Bozeman this weekend because I'm going to do a bunch of podcasts. And, and she's like, why are you so excited about the podcast portion of it? I'm like, because it's fun. And when you get off of a good, a good conversation, you're like, man, I'm excited. That person's passion. If I can just get a little bit of that every time, I'm going to be way better for it. Totally. And I think that's why people listen to any podcast. Like a good conversation is worth more than you think it is, even in the moment. Totally. And so we just now we just record all our good conversations (laughs) (laughs) to be stored forever. Ever. For everyone. (laughs) Unless you delete them. That's true. (laughs) Well, well, congratulations on your marriage. When is it going to happen? September 15th. We already said that. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, Rachel's getting her hunting license this year. Ooh. She came out with me last year. Um, I was able to connect with a, an amazing elk, and she looked at me right after, and she's like, "I'm getting a bigger one." I was like, "Sweetheart, can we just like enjoy the fact? Let's that- take some time to get <laughs> before we become a real hunter. <laughs> Let's enjoy. <laughs> Let's enjoy the little things." But hopefully, we're gonna spend some time. You know, we're kind of just dedicating that month to just being out in the hills and really enjoying right. home and our first fall in this house. And wow, yeah, it should be good. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, this place is uh, this time of year. I mean, what's it? Mid Ju- mid July right now. I mean, it's it's a little warm, but 
freaking beautiful. Yeah. 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 We just drove down the canyon. It's a big sky. And you're just looking around like this. People people live here. Yeah. It's and there's yeah. there's so much I mean, Bozeman's awesome because it has so much going on. You know, you have mm-hmm. the university, you have I think a pretty amazing suite of people with different backgrounds and perspectives and ideals. Sure. Um, it's pretty diverse, especially for this part of the country. Mm-hmm. And then you can go, you know, five, 10 minutes in any direction and you're out there, you know, which yeah. is kind of the draw. And out there. Yeah, like, totally. In public land too. Yeah. National I mean, forests everywhere. Yeah. Rachel grew up just a few minutes from town and, you know, we've seen moose and we saw a wolf run through right next to their house and we've seen grizzly bears in the hills Damn. up here and, you know. Suffice to say, I like it here. Yeah, it's a good place. It's a nice air- place. Airport's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. You know, super easy. Yeah, my kid, we landed. My kid found, like, have you ever, when you go out of security to go in the airport, there's that little store and there's like a stuffed bear that's like yeah. two feet tall. He just he just ran over, hugged that bear and just picked it up and started walking with it. And I'm like, son, that's theft. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, yeah, that's a $1,000. That's a $1,000 bear, so you can't have it. Put it back. You can cut its paw off and I'll take that home. But yeah, it's like he, <laughs> if he goes into the Chicago airport, he's just looking around like, don't don't yeah, hurt me. Totally, yeah. This is a very like, I think you step off the plane and it's, it feels approachable. Yeah. You know, except when it's negative 20 in February. I know. Well, anyway, don't move to Montana. <laughs> Nobody will. Yeah. People, yeah. People that live here don't want you to move here. We're just staging Listen. before our move to Orlando. Yeah. Oh, it's you know? nice this time of year in Orlando. It is. Have you the fishing? Yeah. And the dolphins and the, the sand. In the, so much in the tank and the dolphins. Do they still have uh, dolphins in the wild? Dolphins yeah, in the wild. <laughs> Do they still have them in the tanks where they, people watch them like SeaWorld? Maybe. I know the orca thing has that's a big deal that's a big deal yeah i don't know enough about that to talk about that yeah blackfish yeah blackfish is a film to watch yeah i'm not seeing it but i've heard, heard a lot about it yeah um we're rambling man <laughs> yeah. we're full on this rambling. is good i like rambling I i'm feeling feeling like it's a good rambling day yeah so i don't really want to get all serious or anything like that well i appreciate um, you uh reaching out i think that first podcast was that was yeah. a lot of fun yeah well you know what got me thinking about that one you live here obviously uh we've never uh met in person but second, um, Gear Junkie did an article in, of the best hunting podcasts. Mine was on there, and it was like, "What's the best? What was the best episode?" And they put the one with you. I no was way. Like, well, let's do another one. No way. So thank you, Gear Junkie. Yeah, thank you. I got to check uh, out that article. Yeah, it just says how great you are. Uh, or yeah, maybe it's a reflection that people like nerdy science, psychology stuff. <laughs> or just different stuff. Yeah. Or just different, a conversation that goes a different direction. Because I find that like being in the industry is is troublesome for me. Because you don't really have just a regular person's perspective on hunting anymore. Yeah. It's kind of impossible to have that. Even for me, when I walk in, you know, I've been a writer and then working at Yeti and, you know, you work in the industry, you get free product. Like right. it's just part of the deal. Not, a, not ashamed to say it. So when you walk going Bass Pro, you're like, well, hmm, it's expensive. Right, that's a lot of money. Yeah, so there is a bubble in our industry that you get in, but it's very easy to one. It's kind of like a boys' club where you, you know, you hit the rumor mill and you talk about everybody, and but you, you lose your perspective on gear and you lose your perspective on what hunting really is and how hard it really is to get into for people that don't do it, and two, for people that do take part, how hard it is on your pocketbook and and your time if you have a family. These things are hard. Yeah. So when you're doing it for a living, air quotes, you lose that perspective. And maybe that's the goal because you everybody would love to do it for a living that that hunts. But I think when they hear your perspectives, it's much like, hey, here's a guy who's not talking about 
these amazing adventures in a way that that's his business. He started studying ecology and moved into this. Right. And so those perspectives are, my God, that's important to me. Yeah, and I think I appreciate that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I remember my mentor in graduate school told me was, you know, some of the most uh, inspiring people that we've had on earth have married two kind of disconnected worlds. You know, it's like the mathematician who's a ceramicist who figures out how to like patch a heart, you know, or it's mm. the the farmer who's really good at chemistry who figures out how to make the crop resistant strain. And I think that kind of blend of perspectives kind of hopefully, you know, works towards removing that kind of island dynamic that can happen in certain mm-hmm. communities. You know, whatever field, whether you're in sports or science or hunting, you know, you kind of get on your island and you talk to your tribe and you can kind of predict what people are going to say, how they're going to react. Um, obviously, there is some some flux of new ideas and new perspectives, but it mm-hmm. can be kind of that insular space. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, a good point. Like, anymore, I'm firmly pro-nuance and I'm firmly anti-tribalism. Like <laughs> yeah. that, I don't know if I could describe myself. Like, what do you believe? Like, I don't know those two things for sure. Yeah. In 2018, I feel like you have to be those two things, totally. especially if you live in a digital space and put content out. You gotta be like, let's leave room for nuance and let's not get in our bubble. Let's let's try to like look at everything with an open mind. Yeah, and I think you know one of the pillars of of science is this idea that science is imperfect science builds on the you know our predecessors work it stands on the shoulders of the people that inspired us Mm -hmm. and the best science stems from the best question yeah and they're always the best science always presented with this idea that that we are 95 percent confident in our results that leaves an inherent five percent unknown yeah so i think that's something that's that i find interesting with hunting or conservation or ecology or whatever that society we the media whatever there's this inclination to be definitive and to say like it's this way or that way and there's two bins but what i always try to say like you're talking about that nuance that minutia the weeds are where the magic happens and the weeds are where the truth comes from um so it's it's hard because folks you know we're, we're looking for answers yeah but oftentimes you know like I just got back from this horse project, there are answers that are applicable to a population, to a herd, to a herd management area, um, to a season, to a rainfall regime, you know? And then the second, like that place that used to have two inches of rain gets no rain, then it's a whole different answer. So it's, it makes, yeah. But I think that's, that's the beauty of, you know, of looking at the world that way, that there's always room to improve. Yeah. And it also takes a long time. Totally. Science, you can't you can't look at somebody like, whoop, I got it. Here's my scientific, here's yeah. my, the final scientific conclusion <laughs> to this problem. I just figured it out. Except like, extinction. That <laughs> that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Like, are the we haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> yeah. Put and him on the list. There's the dead one on the ground. Yep. And that's the he looks like he might be the last one. <laughs> yeah. The way that he's dead. Oh, which is such a bummer. Yeah. So there's so few finalities in the exploration of the out the outside or natural right. world. There's no finality in the scientific exploration of it. Right. There seems to be finality in our opinions when we, you know, dial up the rigidity of our own, you know, ideologies and philosophies and just dial it up a little bit, which it seems a lot of people have done. Right. And then you leave no room to one, change your mind when something happens to change your mind. 
and two, have any kind of discourse about something that you may even slightly disagree with someone else on. And so I think those things are, you know, scientific approaches, the scientific approach to life might be a little bit better than the way some folks are approaching it right now because it's, you know, on a lot of issues, especially in our entire society, but in our hunting space too, outdoor space too. I think it's those those rigid opinions are annoying as shit. Totally. And I think the oversimplification mm-hmm. is annoying because yeah. people, some people are looking for that. Mm. You know, I mean, maybe that's because we've been trained by the media to look for that because that's what a lot of headlines are. It's just an oversim- oversimplification or a skewed perspective. You know, it's hard to make a living being liminal. It's hard to make a living being, you know, acknowledging the complexities. Yeah. Be like, know? I think in general we shouldn't do this, but let me just tell you, here's 10 other reasons why you might be able to yeah in this context but out of that context i disagree with it and people are like well he hates him <laughs> yeah. this guy sucks he's anti whatever he just said <laughs> yeah. even though he said it sometimes you could do it yeah. he doesn't want you to do it it's yeah like the, and he's got a plastic water bottle yeah that's <laughs> a single use yeah 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 it's it's hard but i would say and i think you're a good example of it and rachel as well is a good example of it if you if you emit the those energies, like, hey, look, it's positivity, it's curiosity, it's like, I want to go outside, I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to soak this up, then people will pick up on that. Right. And you don't eventually then you're not even talking about controversial subjects that much because it's just something you're passionate about. And you're not talking about it because it is a controversy. You're addressing it because you're passionate about it, whether it's of argument or not. You know, and then that's what's way easier than, you know, even me as a writer or a journalist. Like, oh, it's a controversy. Well, you need to address that now. Like, I don't really care about that thing. Right. Like, let me be passionate about what I'm talking about before I dive into the next controversy because that's the thing that people are talking about today. Well, and it's hard because, you know, as as people who work in the outdoor space but also the media and content space, you know, you you realize that if you're writing a story, if there's two stories, one's on grizzly bears and one's on the – female indigo bunting <laughs> you know i mean regardless of how epic your, like <laughs> your indigo bunting story is there's gonna be quite a few more clicks on the grizzly bear story i think you just got to learn how to you know really write <laughs> really sauce that bundle really up, you know? that up yeah. yeah but but what what we in the science world we have these things called umbrella species so you can like bin and compartmentalize these spaces with uh, a totem species say a polar bear or grizzly bear or whatever something that's like attractive that catches the eye and then you can you can weave in all the underlying narratives that exist because that grizzly bear habitat exists or that grizzly bear population exists. So there are ways, I think, to effectively and in an appropriate way bring the indigo bunting into the narrative by yeah. saying, "Hey, it's you know, mountains don't just aren't vending machines for elk. You know, mountains <laughs> actually you know are places where waters retained and where vegetation grow and where forage and habitat yeah. exists and where elk." come from you know and healthy elk are a function of a healthy ecosystem yeah. and that's where the indigo bunting also lives and then it's like aha ha, bunting, <laughs> bunting I got you. made it <laughs> you didn't think i'd get you there folks but i got you there i got you to the bunting from the elk <laughs> yeah. we never get there everybody can look up the indigo bunting three degrees of the indigo bunting <laughs> yeah. screw you kevin bacon you're out now son in the outdoor world you got to get to the bunting <laughs> hashtag indigo bunting um yeah 
we don't have a hashtag for the podcast. So I continually trying to find one. I think maybe yeah. Indigo Bunting. Yeah, totally. Might be the one. Yeah, or the Indigo Bunting Collective. No, that could be good. That'd yeah. be a lot. We like today's episode. <laughs> Today, today's episode is Indigo the real color of the Bunting. Hmm? <laughs> Nobody knows. Or is it a filter on Instagram? That's right. It could be purple. We don't know. <laughs> um, I what the other thing that interests me in your perspective is you do you feel like hunting or even hunting and the outdoor space both call them both yeah call them the people that go outside world hunting fishing outdoors whatever do you feel like they lack leadership from a scientific perspective like there isn't there's leadership from like a i'm a hero i climb a thing or i hunt a thing but there's not a lot of people that are leading from a scientific pulpit yeah you know um or influencing maybe leading is the wrong term but you know whatever's proper scientific influence on those people yeah you know it's a challenging thing because i think at one point science and exploration of science were valued at large in society i mean back when we had von humboldt and we had darwin to a certain extent um some of these people were out creating you know creating the foundation for our scientific understanding and they were getting funded by kings and queens and being invited to speak at places that were drawing being you know they were the most powerful and influential people in society there you know listening to their research Mm. and i think there was that kind of that awe around the work and i think there was more trust you know, placed in the in the scientific space yeah. and community. And I think fast forward to, you know, even Abraham Lincoln protecting Mariposa Grove, 1864, um, height of the Civil War. He protects Mariposa Grove because he hears it's epic. You know, there wasn't much science. It was more, I've seen this place. It needs to be saved. Mm-hmm. Then we have John Muir. You know, he comes at it from, you know, a religious perspective, but one that I think is rooted in reverence. Uh, for for the aesthetic, for the glaciers, for the natural history, um, he More was like a, a God's creation type of yeah environmentalism. Totally, and I, and he did do he did collect data. He was kind of passionate about the glaciers, so I think there was an empirical kind of science um, driver, but it was certainly religious and, and theological as well. Yeah. Um, so then we you know we fast forward and then it becomes you know there's that that religious lens. And then we move into the Teddy Roosevelt time where I think a lot of it was looked at the the resource. You know, what is there to extract? What is there to save from over-extraction? Um, science certainly helped inform all of that. You know, I think with the dawn of the Forest Service, science became a bigger role. Conservation became a bigger role. People started thinking, you know, how do we as managers fit into this equation? But then today, you know, obviously I think that mindset of management stewardship is still pervasive through our federal agencies and state agencies as well. But we have such a robust outdoor and hunting culture that I believe to your point is pretty detached from the on the ground scientists Mm -hmm. and some of the key work. And it's not necessarily just the outdoor and hunting community's fault. I think the scientific community has done a pretty poor job of yeah. extending a hand and poor marketers, poor marketers, and that's yeah. not their fault. I mean, w- the currency in science is to create peer-reviewed research and to create data sets and to be, you know, there's this kind of like legacy of being insular and coming from that space, having spent 
most of my adult life as a scientist, I remember going to those conferences and sitting in on those lectures and those, um, you know, different kind of gatherings of the minds. And it's like, okay, this is rad that we're all on the same page, but everybody who's out there in the general public, number one, isn't going to understand what we're talking about, isn't, doesn't have access to what we're publishing. And it's not being written about or disseminated in a way that's at all digestible. Yeah. So that's partially the scientific community's fault. So I think it's kind of this like big disconnect. And I think the result is that you have an outdoor industry that's largely standing on the pillars of physical accomplishment. I think there is some conservation stewardship there, but I think generally it's how badass can you be? Um, how extreme can you be? And that's yeah. great. I mean, that's a whole different aspect of the narrative. Yeah. The hunting industry is, I think, a little bit more tapped in because to hunt, you need wildlife. Yeah. And for wildlife to exist, you need an ecosystem that's functioning. I mean, you could climb a, a, mount, a mountain kind of. Yeah. It doesn't mean there have to be pike it's on It's the same. It. Like, I think we get lost in our own decades-long conservation story. We get lost in the fact that we can get, look at Africa and be like, well, they value wildlife because they're uh, they're worth money when you hunt them. So that's the big argument over there. But we get lost in our own value system for wildlife. It's kind of the same thing. We get lost in, we value these animals because of the opportunities. We have reverence for the opportunity to hunt them. That's why we value them. Right. We don't necessarily value them within the ecosystem right. or as, as a part of a grain or landscape. We value them for that opportunity so our value system is is akin to africa's we've just kind of over a hundred years or so really reshaped what that looks like what that value system looks like yeah and i think we have maybe and i'm not an expert in africa and definitely don't plan to I don't, pretend that i am i'd rather avoid the subject oh I for I don't sure know why i even brought it up no yeah, I, I always try to like yeah, so compl- it's a con- it's a continent, man. We don't yeah. talk about North <laughs> yeah. American hunting. Yeah, like let's let's slow down. Yeah, and you know, I think you could probably argue that the the landscape, the the, the social, political, ecological landscape is more dynamic oh, there, yeah. um, which makes it even more challenging for people like us who are laymen to talk about. Or like when people say like hunting in Africa, I'm like, do you realize Egypt? Isn't like, <laughs> yeah, totally Egypt. Yeah, <laughs> or South Africa or the Seychelles. Yeah, you like. <laughs> You don't you don't be like ah Northwest Territories or Mexico yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. The, these are conflict these are the the purest generalization of pure generalizations which happens in uh, I think it happens in the hunting world and, and the anti or non hunting world like oh hunting in Africa is this or that let's maybe break it down totally yeah and I think you know even the people like within hunting you know as an editor at Modern Huntsman one of the real treats has been to focus on this idea that that hunters exist on a spectrum just mm-hmm. like politicians just like humans and there's the best and there's those that could use some work and there's a lot in between who i think are open to being better yeah and it's unfortunate when one person whether it's a politician or your neighbor or a guy who hunts in your neighbor in your community does something that's not ideal that paints sheds a bad light on the broader collective yeah. isn't that a tough that's a tough concept because i got into this podcast thinking that's what i'm gonna talk about all the time but then the more you talk about it, you're like this is depressing man yeah this sucks and it and i always picture like a tug of war you know you had a bunch of people on one side of the road tugging on that thing you could choose which side you want to be on and that little you know that little ribbon that's got to go one side or the other as far as how is hunting perceived 
I just want to be on the, the side that's pulling towards good. Yeah. And as long as I'm over there pulling, I don't really need to be pointing out the people on the other side exactly for what they're doing. As long as I'm pulling, at least that's my base level for that fight. If I'm pulling towards a good, I'm okay. If I see an opportunity to talk to somebody on the other side and try to convince them to come to my side, I'll do it. Right. But I don't need to be browbeating every person that posts something that I don't like. Or Yeah, whatever. and I mean, it's like when your mom calls you and asks her day going, you're not going to sit and spend the whole conversation telling her how like shitty your day was. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, life's good. Yeah. You know, the baby's good. You know, whatever. Like, it's, it's, I think thinking positively and being drawn to the positive yeah. not only makes your day better, but just helps you focus on like where we should be working to move the needle further. Oh, yeah. Because you, you know? can spend every conversation you have in the hunting world talking about people you do not like. Right, or that, in the outdoor space, I'm the same. Totally. You know? But what's the point? Because as soon as you start doing that, you quit pulling. You quit pulling that rope. And you are like have to stop the point to the other side. And you quit. Now you're not doing what you set out to do. And to that point, let's just keep pulling. Well, and I think, you know, to your initial question, like the scientific space and the scientific world, I think, is making some great progress. Mm. You know, I'm seeing a lot of folks in the outdoor recreation space looking towards science and conservation stewardship to inform the way that they engage with their playgrounds, whether it's a mountain or a crag or a trail or a lake or a river. Um, and then the hunting space, you know, one of the really kind of exciting things is getting a chance to work with Sitka as a conservation advisor yeah, and man. helping them develop, uh, you know, initiatives and kind of repackage content and just take a closer look at some of these themes. And I've met so many people in Bozeman and the broader hunting space that, you know, are sending me peer reviewed science papers that are solid. And they're saying, Hey, like, this is what we're thinking should inform the way we address this issue. Yeah. And I think that's something that we can do more of. And, you know, we can look to the people who are spending their entire career as a field scientist. You know, like we can sit from afar, you know, looking at the world through our phone or the internet or as a plane flying over. But within every county in the country, oh, yeah. there's a handful of scientists who know that reality yeah. better than anybody. How much can you learn from that person? Like, right. Oh, my God. Right. How much can you learn from the guy who's trapping hogs in Oklahoma? Right. Who's trying to eradicate them? And, and you say, wow, hunting hogs is good. And that guy stands up and be like, listen, I've been doing this for 15 years and it's not good. Right. Like, whoa, okay. Totally. I wish I had talked to you earlier. Yeah. And that like his experience, you know, the hog situation in Oklahoma is very different than the hog situation in California, you know, and to say yeah. it's this or that, you know, I, I think like we've talked about already, you know, it's so valuable to be like, well, this guy's experience is his experience and it's representative of this county or this part of the state. And let's focus on that. Yeah. You know, let's tell that story because yeah. it's part of the story. Here's one of the many. Yeah. Here's one of the many stories. Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made, innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent 
who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. Comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. You just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Um, yeah, sometimes you go to Texas, hop in a helicopter, and shoot a bunch of hogs. That's good. Might not always be good. It's probably always fun for the people in the helicopter. Um, but that's a hard thing. Like, you know, that visual for somebody who isn't relatively informed on the topic, I think there's there's that disconnect. And one of my wildlife professors at Berkeley when I was an undergraduate, um, his name is Reginald Barrett. He's a professor emeritus, incredible guy, studied under Luna Leopold. Oh, wow. Um, and he was hired by the Australian government to come out and try to help them figure out how to get rid of wild hogs. And they went up with um, the military and some high-powered rifles and thought about that could be a way to do it. And it just wasn't cost-effective because bullets are so expensive. Wow. So, I mean, there are, I think for folks who aren't familiar with the hog situation, it is a, a robust population that has no checks. So there's no balance. And death is death and that's something that takes place whether you eat a chicken or a piece of kale or you have a cotton shirt yeah things are dying yeah how do you get that because that example and i always hey i I don't want to get on a soapbox but i do want to examine that idea yeah because it is an important idea i always don't i find myself sometimes i used to i don't anymore 
because of the pulling and the rope thing we talked about. Yeah. I used to drink whiskey and go online and fight with <laughs> fight with vegans. Shit. What was like your that. handle on Twitter? Oh no, it's just my handle. <laughs> I just I used to go on to like the the vegan thing and like just but not argue, but just try to talk sent, you know. It was from Indigo that, Bunting Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Indigo Bunting. Indigo Bunting official. I'm like, man, I'm a bird. <laughs> I'm over trying to eat some seeds. Um I would and I would argue with these fucks. And I always felt like that was the one point that I needed them to understand that like you are a part of the a cycle of consumption. You were designed to consume. That is what we do. We are an ant hill. Like right. fly over LA one time. Mountains, mountains, mountains. What's that thing? That's humans. Right. Like that's the one thing that always got me. And so how do you like how do you talk to somebody about that idea? Like, hey, no matter what you do, you're you're doing being a vegan or recycling or all those things that you're doing, you're doing them for the right reasons. Totally a hundred percent agree with you on what you're doing. But you're not off the hook. Right. Don't tell me you're off the hook. And don't tell me that I'm on the hook because right. I kill something. Right. Like, how do you get that across to somebody who's so far down that ideological path? I've not found that I could walk anybody back far enough to get them to really, other than to maybe take them hunting or something like that. Right. Yeah. Convince them to go hunting. I think you and I had a conversation on, on our first podcast where we kind of got to something that I've repeated out loud, which Ooh. I've gotten a little backlash for. <laughs> and it's it's this like you're getting at. I mean, the, the if we're talking about net impact on an individual level, the worst thing we ever did was be born. Mm-hmm. I mean, human population is the number one cause. I don't know why you would get backlash for that. <laughs> it seems like it's gnarly. You know, it's yeah. like it's a rough thing. It's a it's a hard thing to say. You know, but I think you can dissect the vegan. You can dissect the rural farmer. You can dissect the inner city. You can dissect the affluent, the hunter, the whatever. Everybody has an impact. Whether it's you know like the palm oil in your makeup or the cereal you're eating or the cotton shirt you're wearing or mm-hmm. the deer you killed or the car you drive and the rubber that's on the wheels. It's gnarly. I mean, everything has an impact. So I think one, the people on either side of the spectrum isn't where I like to focus. I like to focus on the middle ground where there's people who have open ears and open mind and are, are open to the idea of considering something else. Mm-hmm. And with that, you kind of avoid the conflict at either either end of the spectrum. And I think there's a lot of room to say, okay, well, we are here. We're blessed with these resources, with the time, with a voice, with a platform. Let's try to do our best. Yeah. You know, let's try to make the Anthropocene, like the epic that the world is currently in, a better epic. You know? I like that. <laughs> Hashtag indigo bunting. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, man. But there's I hope. I mean, watch the Jane Goodall film. You know, Jane. Like, watch that and tell me that somebody can't be born onto this planet and do good. Yeah. You know, because she's somebody who's doing incredible work, inspiring countless young people to care yeah. about the natural world. And Jane Goodall and I disagree on a lot of shit. Totally. She hates hunting. Yeah. But I still, I still can respect that mindset because I think it's way closer to my mindset than most other folks out there. Yeah. It's like this, this extreme caring. And the other, the other point I think is important to make is like a lot of the things we're talking about hogs, for example, feral hogs, wherever they may be in this in this country. In we put freezer. them here. Oh, really? You have some? <laughs> oh, they're delicious. Yeah. 
And there's a lot of them, it turns <laughs> yeah. out. Who knew? Yeah. We put them here. And so we created a problem. We're fixing a problem. That happens a lot. Right. In, uh, as you well know, in, in, the, in the conservation space and in, in the space that we live in, we, we are fixing a problem that we caused and then lauding our fixing of the problem that we caused with like a lack of perspective of what's exactly going on there. Right. Um, I think that happens a lot in the environmental world and a lot in the hunting consumptive space too. I mean, you're like, we killed all the elk. Well, we there. Yeah. What are they back in like ten or ten to twelve percent of their native range? Yeah, native habitat. I'm not positive, but I'll bet that's close. That's close. Yeah. So we did it. Yeah. <laughs> like, woo. Yeah. And we did. We killed them all. Not me and you. Not our even. You know, not even our grandparents' grandparents. But we humans were a part of that. You know. So what is the thing that we are doing right now that decades from now folks will look back at and be like, can't believe you did that. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because, you know, I just returned from a, a week-long trip in Nevada shooting a film with Phil Baraboo who'd made Charge yeah. and Brandon and Ben Masters who's, Legend. you know, you'll know. Um, and during that trip and after the trip, we've been getting feedback from people saying like, oh, well, this is a this is a horse problem or this is a cattle problem or this is a PETA problem or an activist problem. And it's a lot of people's problems. And what I think a lot of folks forget is that the today exists because of 200 years of human impact Mm -hmm. and horses are here yes they were brought here by the spanish there's a legacy of overgrazing there's a legacy of resource extraction there's a legacy of heavy-handed use by humans you compound all of those things mining you know pioneering like all of these impacts you've had in the natural world coupled with climate changes drought fire all these things that are changing the landscape and then you have today so for people to be like oh it's a horse problem it's like well it's kind of their problem but they're also just like kind of wild animals trying to survive yeah. and it's they're it's, just eating man they're just eating walking you know? around eating they don't trying to find water stop riding yeah and then you know oh it's a cattle problem it's like well there's a lot of people who are running cattle in a much better way than they ran them in the 1800s so you know it's not not really totally their problem there's like a legacy issue you know oh it's the miners problems like well there are regulations in place for mining and that's something that's informed by the way we vote the people yeah. we vote for you know and it's like oh well it's you know a climate problem it's like well a lot of people a lot of the best scientists in the world would say that like our impacts on earth are changing the climate so it's kind of like a historical people problem you know, and it's like you write all those, all that minutiae on a piece of paper, and it's just not conducive to the headline. Yeah, <laughs> you know, life depressing. Yeah, shit is complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> but, By Charles Post. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every time I wade into a situation, though, I'm like, damn, this is like way complicated. Yeah, I. That's again why I like being able to continue to have conversations and then change your mind and not get called out. For changing your mind because you know something today that you didn't know. Like we're essentially organisms that are just growing and changing and molding all the time. Like yeah. when I had a kid, I immediately was a different person. You had to sell all your PlayStations. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> He'll get those one day. <laughs> yeah. But you get a kid, you're like, oh my God, now I'm a different person. Right. I didn't do that. I didn't like wake up and be like, I'm going to do this different, this different. You just wake up and you think differently because now there's this thing over here this human that you got to take care of. So you got to do things differently. You can't function the way you used to function. And so people change all the time and to, you know, you should respect that change. And the, and our environment changes because of us. 
And so we must look at it the same way. Like, right. When we invent the flying car, I think we might have already invented it. You think we already invented You think somebody in California has a flying car prototype that that fucking works? <laughs> Elon Musk surely has a flying car. I mean, I am one of the biggest nerd advocates out there. Uh, and I would bank that some nerd has something hidden away. There's some motherfucker <laughs> yeah. out there flying around. Yeah. People are like, what's that? It's not a flying car. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> it's flying, it's flying around his big wheels. garage or something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there was a, a, a really cool, I'm not sure if it was on Vice or my brother, who's like a total nerd, showed me this. Um, it's this kid. So you know, there's like self-driving cars, like, you know, um, Tesla has yes. some of the best technology out there. This film, I think it's like, it, it's on YouTube, I want to say. But this kid, just like some 20-something-year-old nerd, goes in his garage and with like $120 for the computer parts, makes an autonomous vehicle. It's like his old Civic. It's like a total piece of shit. But the thing drives, it learns. So he has this like model, this program he's developed where this car is learning as he's nudging it through traffic and it letting it experience different types of road conditions. And this correspondent, I want to say for Vice, is like, holy shit, like you, like, you figured it out in your garage. Yeah. You know? So I have to imagine somebody's flying a car somewhere. Yeah, man. Because the Jetsons <laughs> was a long time, like 20 years yeah, ago, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, they had, the Jetsons had flying cars. So so was Y2K. Yeah. I remember my dad's like, all right, Y2K, we have six cans of soup, four water bottles, and some bread. I was like, sick, we're going to live. We'll be fine. <laughs> we're going to make soup. And toast. Sandwiches? Yeah, don't burn the toast. Yeah, Y2K, that was the dumbest thing. <laughs> I don't even remember Karen. I was just like, whatever, fine. <laughs> Twelve. Yeah, I was like, out. I still can't ollie on my skateboard. Yeah, man. I'm Fifteen. <laughs> don't take away my my baseball bat, my glove. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with any of that, but I will say, <laughs> if you, anybody knows anybody that has a flying car, I'd like to get them on the podcast. Yeah, and just talk about it. You can use mostly that for hunting purposes. Yeah. yeah, mostly for hunting purposes because I'm sure it's quiet. Yeah. Addendum. Anyone who has a quiet flying car. Solar powered. Solar powered. Yeah. yeah not coal. Yeah. Nope. It doesn't affect the environment. <laughs> Benign. Recycled wheels. <laughs> yes. Please. <laughs> Made of bamboo. Please call in. I know we don't have a call. <laughs> I know we don't have a way to call in. But just, just call in anyway. Um, you think every, we would ever have a call in podcast where like people would call in? That'd be I, beneficial. Yeah, I think it, it would be cool, but I think you might get some like rogue callers. Yeah. You know, where you're like, beep. <laughs> beep. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, John from South Dakota, we're sorry, we're not going to have Hi, this is again. Indigo Bunting, and I'm <laughs> yeah. committing suicide right now listening to your boring ass podcast. Your window. <laughs> yeah. Because you're boring. <laughs> um, back to the regular conversation. Do you, do you believe that with that middle ground person? Who you're trying to just be like, look, you impact the world. You might not have the the mental bandwidth, not that you're not a smart person, but you might not just not have enough space in your day because you're like, you had a kid, care for the human, get right. the human along, make sure that human gets what it needs to live and then also get smarter and better. Um, for society, you just don't have the time to do all the research about all the things and be informed on all the things. But here are a few things you can do to make the world better. And understand your impact. Right. I mean, there are things that you can think of. Is that too broad a question? I know we say like recycle, do this, do that. But are, are there more specific things going outside that you like, man, here's your impact. Like, yeah. Understand your total impact sucks. You're a part of a an organism that is eating this earth <laughs> alive. It's yeah. eating this. Um, but here's how you can protect the epic. Like here's how you can make it better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that comes to mind is uh 
college graduation, the Dalai Lama comes to UC Berkeley and gives a, a talk. Oh. And he sits on his little... Uh, Did you just name drop the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama. my podcast? That's a... <laughs> the first, right? Hashtag Dalai Lama. <laughs> Hashtag Dalai Lama. Okay, continue. From the California colleges. Continue he's kind of got long hair. I like this. Um, Never thought. He, he's sitting up there and... Uh, you know, he says some some really poignant things. One of them is that uh, one of the keys that has influenced the way he perceives the world is to always remain the student. The second you identify as a professor, you lose the opportunity to learn. And I think that translates to the idea of looking at the world and looking at the complexities and all the sh- crazy things that are happening from a place of curiosity. And realizing that there are people who are experiencing the world in a different way, seeing it through a different lens, and that through questions and listening, you individually in your backyard and your community can have a better understanding of how you fit into the broader global dynamic, but also how you can improve yourself. Maybe you're interested in organic farming. Maybe you're interested in bow hunting. Maybe you're interested in flying cars. Like Through your pursuit of doing whatever you love the best way possible, you can reduce your impact and do what's feasible for you financially, physically, given the resources you have or don't have. I mean, everybody is has a different situation. And I think just looking at the complexities of the world by saying, like, how can I improve and what questions can I ask to give me a better worldview, I think will help. That's a great one. Always be a student. I, that, that is something I need to go reapply to some conversations I had in the last couple of weeks. Then after, it was so funny because after he says that and, you know, everybody's like, oh, man, that was so impactful. So deep. Yeah, so some kid raises his hand. It was like the last question. And he's like, oh, could uh, could you give our class like any parting wisdom? And he sits there and he kind of does this little like wiggle and he looks at us and starts laughing. He's like, yeah, good luck. And I think that's I think that's a, a, a pretty solid um, bit of advice too because I think a lot of a lot of kind of your impact in your life experience just comes from having good luck but also being open to the luck that you have because a lot of people go through the world with their eyes closed i think there's so much to be said for going through the world with your eyes open seeing those doors that might be presented to you seeing those people who might be there to help you or to collaborate with you or to corroborate with you um and i think just having that openness uh, is, is huge as well because it's when people will get on that island and they you know put their blinders on and they put their head down and they just dig their heels in is where you, you don't get a lot of progress yeah and that's a good point um the dalai lama huh <laughs> yeah oh, man he's think, a legend i always wonder like <laughs> does the dalai lama like, just like go to taco bell probably think so yeah i'd I'll like bet. to know <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's just like a normal guy. Yeah. Does he have vices though, the Dalai Lama? Because that's a smart, always be a student is about, that is a smart thing. Yeah. And he's become the Dalai Lama based on all the smart things he says. Yeah. But I wonder if he just is like, ah, I'd love a burrito. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After that speech, he just goes down. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Probably. I feel like he's just as human as anybody else. Probably. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Well, good. I'm glad the Dalai Lama got in on the conversation today. Yeah. Is that, that's a first for the podcast? I don't know. Maybe. I did have Shane Mahoney on. He's kind of like he's yeah. a, a bit of a Dalai Lama. Yeah. Like a Canadian Dalai Lama. <laughs> well, right like next that. door to Tibet, we have Bhutan, which is heard about that. pretty nice. cool. It's a kingdom that's the entire kingdom is a wildlife sanctuary. Is it? Yeah. Because uh, who went over there? Now, Oliver White, who's a big time fly fisherman, went over and fished there hmm. for a Yeti film. Wow. Like good with, fishing. I think so with Ben Knight and Travis Rummel, I believe. Oh, yeah. 
So maybe we'll get to know more about that, that film when it comes out. But um, that's good to know that. Yeah, tell that, me more. You, how much you know about that place? I know one other thing. Oh, tell they, us that. Instead of um, GDP, gross domestic productivity, they have GDH, gross domestic happiness. That's their metric for success Lord. or progress. Wow. Right? I have to look into that. How do they measure happiness, you feel? Probably a simple survey. Survey monkey or something. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that thing on Instagram stories where you can put the hard eyes at yeah. one level. I oh. do that sometimes. And then, you know, it'll be like a picture of Rachel, my fiance, and I'll like swipe to the far right because it's like the most. Oh. And then I look at him like, Is it, did I, I think I'm the only person who voted on that. Well, then maybe like <laughs> you accidentally let your finger off too early and it goes and it goes halfway and she yeah. comes home like, really? And then you get that text. Yeah, you're like halfway hard eyes. Yeah. You asshole. Sleep on the couch. <laughs> you fool away hard eyes every time. What's wrong with you? We're getting married. You don't love me. Um, Dalai Lama. We'll switch. So wild horses. Yeah. I'm going to make the transition from the Dalai Lama. Wild horses. Wild horses. First time ever on earth, probably. Oh, and we're actually looking at some horses that are not wild. Yeah. And you're- um, Four of them backyard there yeah um there's the transition bam perfect so you went to nevada correct yep with that uh pretty impressive group of filmmakers yep um to take a look at the wild horse issue yep and then make a make a film on it what did you find yeah i think um first of all like the kind of genesis of the project was pretty pretty awesome you know we had over a dozen different state local and federal agencies come together and basically propose the idea of us making a film. Um, and it was really, I think that was set us off on a great trajectory because we had so many people from so many organizations with so many interests and stakeholders with a singular focus on like, let's, t- let's present the story in an authentic, accurate light. The film, well, we didn't set out to, answer all the questions you know people have spent their entire career trying to do, trying to answer some of these questions that are just complicated but instead the intention behind the film was can you guys go out there can you embed yourselves with experts folks with decades of experience can you learn about their their reality and can you digest those vignettes into an overarching message what is the state of wild horses on public lands in America? And what are some of the things we can do to push the needle in a path of stewardship of sustainability? Because right now, the wild horse issue is, it's shitty. The wild horses aren't winning. The ecosystem certainly are not winning. Um, we have a pretty divided group of people who are, quote unquote, air quotes, for horses and against. There's a lot of people in the middle who I know are eager to learn more. So we kind of came at it from that space in the middle, which is like, let's just learn as much as we can. Let's present what we've learned and pose some hopefully provocative questions um, that folks can listen to and, and explore in their own time and through their own means. Yeah, that's interesting. How pervasive is the, how, what's the population of wild horses in Nevada? Do they know? They do. You know, Nevada has the most wild horses in the country. Um, their wild horses and burrows generally get generally get clumped together. Um, there's well over eighty thousand wild horses in North America. The exact number in Nevada, I'm not I'm not 100 percent on, um, but there are 
fifty-five thousand excess wild horses and burros. So wow. what what the what the federal government has done is they've looked at public lands in America and they've said, okay, given the resources that these public lands offer, forage and water primarily, we believe that the public lands in America can sustain at this point twenty-six, a little over twenty-six thousand wild horses and burros. So then, you know, they send out the their researchers and their their crews to do surveys, and they say, how, you know, to the best of our knowledge, how many wild horses are there? At last count, there are fifty five thousand more than the landscape can sustain. So that might not—that's just like a number for a lot of people. I think what people uh, sometimes forget, and I think what kind of gets missed, is that if you're a horse that needs to drink, you know, eight, nine, ten gallons of water a day, maybe more if it's hotter, and needs uh, you know, a ton of forage as well. The land can only support so many horses. Then you have native wildlife. Mm-hmm. You have cattle. And you have limited water, limited forage. Um, it's a complicated situation. The kind of the main thing that I think we learned is that there's a platform to manage wildlife. We have sage-grouse biologists who can go and study a meadow system and say, this meadow system is critical for the uh, stability and preservation of this population, and we need to maintain the meadow. So we're going to, we're going to, um, we're going to tell the, we're going to we're suggest that the BLM uh, ask the permittee, the cattle grazer, uh, the, cat, the operator, to put his cattle on the meadow in late summer when the sage-grouse have been able to use it to rear their chicks when the flowers have been able to bloom and the pollinators have been able to use it, when it's at a less sensitive state. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, the operator will be like, okay, I'll put my cattle in in July. We'll scratch the itch of the sage-grass biologists. We'll help maintain the ecosystem. We'll run our cattle through there because cattle need forage, especially at the end of the summer. And that's a win-win. There's, there's a platform for the wildlife managers to work with the federal government and state agencies. And there's a platform for cattle operators to do the same thing. Certainly there are examples where the wildlife are losing for a very variety of reasons. Maybe it's historical overgrazing, maybe it's drought, maybe it's fire. I mean, there's a 500,000 acre fire in Nevada that's burning or yeah. was burning biggest in the country, destroying sage grouse habitat and sage grouse communities. So there's a, there's a platform there. If there are too many deer, too many hogs, too many elk, not enough. There is a platform and a structure for folks to work together and say, like, here's the platform we're working within. Let's accomplish this goal or work towards this goal. Cattle. There is a structure and a platform for operators, permittees, and also um, other stakeholders to have input in the way cattle are grazed in public lands. There are certainly uh, operators and cattle that are grazed in a uh, I would say a very mindful, sensitive way. And there's other situations that I think could use some work. Wild horses, they're the wild card. There is some structure, but through litigation from, in many cases, uh, folks who would identify as like wild horse activists, uh, the the tools in the BLMs and the National Forest Service toolbox have been limited um, for a variety of reasons, but nonetheless, there's some structure, but there are not many available tools and or resources to implement change. So, so a lot of these, well, so for those, those tools in the toolbox yeah. and the people that are limiting them, I my guess, cause this happens in a lot of, with a lot of different charismatic creatures, uh, predators, mostly right. Anti, I 
I guess we would just say animal rights activists are saying, don't kill them in this way. Don't treat them in this way. Right. And the biologist is like, well, if we do this, you know, if we kill them out of helicopters, we can save the whole population. Or if we do this, do this. And that animal rights activist is like, do not. We're going to put legislation out there to to ban X. I don't know what those those tools are. Is that proper yeah, way of putting it? Or not even to ban, but just it's just, you know, being sued takes a lot of time. Yeah. Like I was talking to these biologists who you'll spend 15 years working on something, you get sued, and then it's just everything's paused for like maybe years. So it's so litigation is a tool to stall. The outcome can be years down the road. But it's been an efficient. It's been an effective tool to just stall things. Yeah. So, and, what are they specifically? Do you know what they're specifically suing to injunct here? Like, yeah. I mean, you know, there have been lawsuits around Roundups being inhumane. Um, a lot of times, Roundups, contemporary Roundups, include uh, ATVs, four wheelers, helicopters. Um, getting those, getting those overpopulated populations into corrals, and then they can be transferred to holding facilities where they're quarantined and given shots and um, you know, castrated and, you know, basically prepared for adoption. That can be a challenging process for the health and well-being of animals. You know, it's a stressful thing. Um, there has been litigation that has prevented the research on spaying and neutering animals um, surgically. Uh, it's been coined as um, inhumane. Um, right now, one of the things that people, some people are excited about uh, it's called PZP, which is it basically makes a, a mare infertile for a little less than a year. Um, there's a lot of people who say that's the way to do it, the way to to stifle the growth of these populations. That's completely naive. Um, there are certain small non-representative cases where individuals who are familiar with a herd that are a herd that doesn't freak out from humans. Yeah. Which I've spent quite a bit of time. Like that was not my first time to Nevada. That was not definitely not my first time with wild horses. To get within the range of a dart gun to shoot a mare, I've never I've maybe on one occasion I've been that close to a wild horse. So it's just not feasible. Time intensive. Time intensive. You have to pay resources. somebody to do that. Totally. Or a volunteer, yeah. but you gotta get them trained and there's gotta be all these checks and balances to make sure it's done well. Yeah. And you need to have a protocol. You need to have uh, consistent data collection. And that mare needs to be identifiable. That mare needs to be darted in the year. That mare won't carry a foal, but she'll keep continue to go into heat, into estrus. So that mare will be bred and bred and bred, but will never carry a foal. That doesn't sound very fun. No. So that's so there's the PCP, there's the sterilization, there's the roundups, and then there are... The, the the harsh reality is that the holding facilities where these animals are rounded up and put to await adoption or to await a life in a dirt parking lot are full uh, or very close to full. So that we don't even have capacity to take in more horses. We don't have, the BLM doesn't have capacity to round up more horses because most of their funding is going to feeding these horses that are in captivity. Oh, wow. $50,000 per horse per, per lifetime. And that's to feed them alfalfa and hay. And for anybody out there who's ever looked at the amount of water that goes into... Yeah, buy one horse, everybody. Yeah. Like, if you, you have know. a half acre, and yeah. you, you can do it. Buy a horse and see what that costs. And yeah, and you know, it costs a lot for the government to feed these horses. It costs a lot to just hold them. 
you know, taking on a horse project is something yeah. that a lot of people don't have the time or money to do. Well, and also to that point, you know, if you're this far along in this story and you're not really sure, like, why do I care? I'm a hunter guy. Right. Cost. Who's paying for that? Where's that money coming from? And where are the land? What are the lands that this is happening on? Right. I think that that yeah. ties back to. Totally. I mean, the cost of the ecosystem is tremendous. And again, it's not just the horse's fault. Like there are these historical legacies of overgrazing or just humans not being super mindful about the ecosystem's health and well-being. But the fact of the matter is you have places that maybe were kind of hammered that are just getting hammered by these horses. The horses aren't winning. Yeah. They're eating themselves at a house at house and home. There's horses, 200 horses died this year in Arizona because of a lack of water and resources. Um, so if you love horses, you should, you know, that should be a, a, a an alarm bell flag. Yeah. Do you, uh, you talk about like, so there's 55,000 excess excess clean and protect your firearms with riptide armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory relentless performance for your firearms hey here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country these are great dude these are really nice things to give to people it's a digital picture frame from aura it's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for from family vacations to their grandkids graduation Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. Comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want. And mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. You just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit 
O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Are these populations all were they wild originally? How much of this is a native population? Are they is any of them is there a native range known for the wild horse, or is it all just essentially escaped? kick their saddle off and run for the hills. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. Um, horses went extinct 12,000 years ago, uh, around then, back when we lost the American cheetah um, and other species. So they existed at one point in North America's history, but they are here because they were introduced by humans. So they are, in my opinion, and by definition, I would say feral livestock. Um, they have We have the Wild Horse and Burrow Treaty Act, which federally protects them. Um, so that's, I think, some of the complicated, that adds a, a mm. level of co- complexity to the situation. But to your point, if you're listening, you're a hunter and you're saying, why do I care about wild horses? We should care about wild horses because wild horses are on virtually all of our public land. Yeah. And wild horses require a lot of food and water. They are competitive. They will exclude pronghorn from drinking. They'll compete with other wildlife for forage. Think about mule deer. Mule deer won't go in the same area that an elk is in. If yeah. a bunch of wild horses move into an area, mule deer, see ya. I mean, we we spent a week out there and didn't see... We saw mule deer in places where no horses. We were filming sage grouse in meadows where the sun came up and the sage grouse flew in to feed with their chicks. The chicks and the and the hens walked in. But, I mean, we had multiple, like, day-old, multiple-day-old uh, mule deer just bedded down in waist-deep. I mean, some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life were these meadow oases in the middle of the sagebrush sea in Nevada, like yeah. like five hours from a town, you know, and the sun comes up and there's just little mule deer popping out. And the reason why that ecosystem is the way it is, is vibrant and healthy is because it's been, uh, there's a fence around it. So horses can't just hammer it because they would. And we went to meadows, you know, a few miles away that didn't have fences and were just basically dirt parking lots. Yeah. And so we love horses. I think horses have a place. I Some of my best most memorable wildlife moments are sitting out there at water holes in the desert and watching 200 horses come galloping up to you. I mean, it's crazy. They're beautiful animals. You know, my best times on in the saddle have been on the backs of Mustangs. Um, I've ridden Ben's Mustangs from Branded a bunch. I mean, they're yeah. good horses. They sure-footed. They work hard. They're, you know, pretty smart, pretty savvy. Um, I think there's a lot of people who would say Mustangs are as good as any other horse. Yeah. We love horses. Horses yeah. are great. But at the same time, do you, do you imagine this is an, a more emotional, more reflective of the emotional appeal of like animal lovers versus, at this point, pragmaticians who yeah. are just trying to manage an entire ecosystem yep. over, hey, sage grouse, I know they're not so beautiful <laughs> to yeah. you. They are actually. Yeah, they're cool. They're really cool. But Fish. they're not so charismatic to you. Right. Right? They're not in movies. Yeah. But they're important too. Right. And by you may not know it or you may know it, but by trying to protect these horses, but by, by trying to lo- overlove these horses, like you're loving other things to death. Right. Um, that's a problem that, that every hunter should understand and should be aware of. But I just think this is a compelling example of the problems that we will face. And from a, from a purely monetary standpoint, would I be wrong to say like this is akin a bit to fire borrowing where when there's a fire and in the in the re- most recent omnibus package that was passed our government the spending package they said you can no longer 
states or federal government can no longer borrow from wildlife managers pockets take from their pockets money to to fight fires because that was happening it's called fire borrowing is this similar to that where you'd be like hey we've got to manage these populations we're going to take from the coffer of the wildlife state wildlife managers buyers but take money from their coffer and put it into this or at least it competes with other priorities totally it competes with elk it competes with whatever from a from a purely monetary standpoint absolutely and you know and and we were with biologists, we were with a little hot and cutthroat trout biologist who was sitting there and saying, yeah, you know, like I can come to my creek that's been hammered by horses and put together a plan to restore it. But my hands are tied and that that opinion, that research will never be uh, employed until there's adequate funding to deal with the horse issue yeah so you have you have we have wildlife money that's being put into wildlife department's pockets to protect game species non-game species and habitat they can do the best job that they could ever dream of but you have this this tide of wild horses that are there stifling their progress they're there turning potential habitat for california bighorn or mule deer or pronghorn into overgrazed deserts. And that's simply because there's that disconnect. There's that inability for the federal government to address the horse issue. And then there's a lack of funding that's tied up with feeding horses in captivity to actually implement the change. The lit- there's litigation, but there's also that, that fiscal hurdle. So you, I definitely think you have, and we, we saw this, you have these biologists who are so passionate about their species, their non-game, their game species. And they see what needs to be done, and they literally can't do it. I mean, we had—I'm not going to name names—but a biologist who was the one of the head uh, game biologists for Nevada. Career was spent working with game species, um, and some of the most beautiful rugged country in Nevada. He cried on interview with us because he was so frustrated and embarrassed and disappointed that he would spend his entire professional career on a topic that got worse on his watch. Hmm. We interviewed a guy, one of the head horse and burrow program supervisors for the BLM, who spent his entire career, 40 plus years, working for the federal government in DC and in Nevada, working on public lands and the wild horse issue. And he sat there and he said he was embarrassed and disappointed that in, on his watch, the program didn't get better. He did have some positive remarks about um, collaborative efforts being developed and communities coming together to work towards a common goal. But in terms of quantifiable wins, the situation has undeniably gotten worse. Mm-hmm. So I think, like you're saying, it's a, it's a money problem. You know, We're taking money out of the pockets of people doing trying to do the best work they can to protect our wildlife, our native ecosystems. Um, and it's just kind of like the shit show of the political system, yeah. litigation, and a lack of resources. And at this point, adoption rates, everything we're doing to manage wild horses doesn't come close to dealing with the reproductive rates. Yeah. You know, what is a, what's the gestation on a foal? Well, every, every four years, populations are doubling. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that insane? That's insane. Yeah, it's a and lot I, of animals. I think about like the way that we think of and how like our value systems might help correct this or make it worse. I don't know, but like 
when we take the gloves off on an animal, for instance, for instance, the coyote right. in Wyoming, they'll pay you fifty bucks yeah. to whack a coyote or hogs. We take the gloves off. One is hunters. I think most hunters are like, woo, gloves off. Yeah. <laughs> Do not kill fifty of these. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I feel like that. It's like it's fun if if it's not you know, it's part of hey, I can go out and kill 10 hogs. And it doesn't matter how I do it. Right. And that's that meat's good. The experience is good. Oh, man, it's shooting practice. Right. But we've taken the gloves off those animals. I don't know if you interviewed somebody in the same position as those the people that are working on the horse program and said, hey, did taking the gloves off do much from a hunting standpoint? Yeah. We took the gloves off. There's coyotes in every state. They live in swamps, in plains. They live in mountains. They live everywhere every ecosystem has a coyote right so like does taking the gloves off as hunters really do anything and the same with a horse does taking the gloves off and saying like hey you're on public land you see a horse crack it yeah shoot it in the head don't eat i mean eat it if you want whatever fine just yeah. take a picture of it <laughs> bring it back i know that's a crude way to say it yeah and probably disrespectful of that animal but might get a few emails in your inbox. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Listen, I've never killed a horse. I'd probably eat one. And the go bunting ben at gmail.com. <laughs> I bunting. Uh, I just wonder, as the toolbox, I mean, they have a, a certain toolbox that's not working. Right. Hunters are a tool themselves. So I wonder how that could be done. It would never be tolerated in this country for people to just be walking around killing horses. Well, this year... Or would it? I, you tell me. I'm, this could be another email. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty oh. sure, um, I feel pretty confident saying this out loud, that there was a hunting season that was opened on a Native American reservation this year for a, a, a few, maybe like one or two individual horses. I don't, I'm fairly certain that none were harvested, but I would have to imagine that decision came about out of... Um, desperation you know th- that group of people those land managers those stakeholders feeling as though there weren't options available aside from hunting um on a more general from a more general place you know the coyote reference and the pig reference i think are interesting because coyotes were initially like a southeastern species that have colonized america functionally because we removed a lot of the apex predators that kept them in check and we just created a lot of avenues for them to to just like pigeons uh, yeah. or starlings to kind of follow our dust yeah. trails an adaptive critter that yeah that can live where we live or really can live anywhere right yeah we That's, gave it an inch they took a mile yeah um a lot of the research out there would say now that hunting coyotes actually just makes more coyotes yep. um and hunting hogs Makes more hogs. Makes more hogs. Educates the ones that are there and makes more. Right. So I think at that point, you know, hunting in those situations, I would say isn't a tool for necessarily management. Maybe on a small local level, on a certain ranch or in a certain area, you might be able to impact the long-term population. But I think the take needs to be pretty high. Horses are different because they're not as fecund or they're not reproducing as rapidly as a coyote or a pig, which we know have many babies often. Mm. Um I'm not an expert in horse biology, but I would probably wager that if that was legal, if that was socially acceptable, if the tools were in place and the platform was in place to implement hunting. Never going to happen, but continue. (laughs) It could be effective. Unfortunately, I, as somebody who loves horses, as somebody who 
more than anything loves well my family and friends but ecosystems that's what i live for 100 percent. i don't quite see another option i think that that the situation will only get worse and i think the um we're kind of at a point of no return where the populations are growing at a rate yeah. that the tools we have can't possibly do enough. Uh, and I think the result is that you're going to have more die-offs and you're going to have more public land that's degraded and you're going to have more wildlife that are losing and more horses that are losing. Uh, and it's just kind of a shitty situation. Yeah. Horses. <laughs> yeah. Wild horses. A shitty situation by Charles. Yeah, Harrison. that's I He's think a nice film. Yeah, that's the uh, synopsis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think these shitty situations uh, are stressful. Stressful. <laughs> He's sweating right now. Just talking about yeah. these horses. I'm still looking at these horses right now. Sorry. Um, Next, you want to like watch like Finding Nemo or something. Yeah, some, like, something uplifting. Keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, don't watch Dance with Wolves or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the way that you put that because I think. Shitty situations are are just like you said. Be a student. Understand that there is a positive outcome here. Are we able as a society, moreover, to stomach killing a horse to save the horses right. and the elk and the sage grouse? Are we willing to do that? I my best guess is absolutely fucking not. No way. <laughs> Damn it, Ben. <laughs> I know. But me, if you gave it up to me, if, if, if somebody came here and said like, absolutism, you can make the call. I'd be like, go. Yeah. Because I think the fail of science-based, biology-based tag systems where the wildlife managers can make the proper calls, these guys you're talking about, the, the ones that are so distressed about the situation, they can be like, yes, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm ready for this now. Uh, maybe I wasn't 10 years ago, but right. now I am. Let's try it on a limited basis and see. Right. And if it works, then we got to keep doing it. And let me take you over to the parking lot where there's a thousand horses bumping around and, you know, licking each other and, and starving to death at once a once a month. Let I mean, me take people, you over there. People are hitting horses on the road. We met multiple people who had lost neighbors yeah. to horse collisions. We found dead horses. We have video footage of horses dying. Uh, we have plenty of footage of horses that are just covered in scars head to toe fighting for water. We have footage of wildlife being moved off water because hundreds of literally over a thousand horses in a day, like a yeah. steady stream of bands coming into water. Um, I just think of what people might not understand. 55,000 horses is extra. Extra. Yeah. Number one. Number two, that is so many horses. 81.9 thousand like, wild horses and burrows exist to the best of our knowledge on public lands and that's 55,000 more than the best scientists have determined the landscape can sustain. Yeah. It's a lot of animals. I like our hashtag keep it public. I do like that hashtag but I would also say keep it fucking sustainable. <laughs> yeah. That's my other hashtag that oh we my need gosh. to come out with. Yeah. We got a lot of good ones. Yeah. That's one. Can we say keep it sustainable? Like it's public. Great. Lovely. Now we're all together paying for this thing. We're all together, you know, using it and, and helping to manage it. But my God, can't we just say, biologists, tell us how we sustain this. Right. And that's what we'll do. Totally. And I think, you know, another big thing is just to think about these places, ecosystems. You know, whether you're a 
an ice climber or a biker or a deer hunter or a waterfowl guy are different passions and interests generally rely on an ecosystem functioning at some level. And I think to remind people that, yeah, mountains aren't elk vending machines. Mountains aren't, didn't, weren't, you know, don't exist just to be climbed mm-hmm. that just because you have a bivy and you hike the PCT, PCT doesn't mean you're benign, you know, that we all have these things we want to take, whether it's an experience or an animal uh, or a photo those things hinge upon the fact that an ecosystem is there. Yeah. You know, and then we can't just look at them as these like disparate little kind of things. They all are connected. And I think we need to look at science. There's a lot of bad science out there. There's a lot of great science out there, but we need to look at science and look at the options available with that like level head, you know, of not getting caught up in emotions because sadly we live in a time where emotions do more than science. You know, yeah. I was listening to a TED talk the other day and this guy said that the way we feel about animals will do more to write their future than anything you'll read in a science book. Yeah. And that is scary. That's a great point. Yeah. And then how do we, as you and I, just as individuals help to, with all good conscience, like adjust the way people think about animals without thinking about that as its totality. Right. I mean, we our relationships with animals start in such a fucked way as children. <laughs> yeah. I can't say fucked and then that be talking about children. Sorry, kids. But it starts in such a a weird way. The prism that that even me as a parent has created for my son is such will be so weird to him when he gets out in the world and discovers, oh, well, that's not the way. Right. He might as well have created certain individual species as Santa Claus. You've basically told me a lie about what they are. Like, you lied to me. They don't wear suspenders <laughs> and go to the market. They eat their young. Like, <laughs> why did you lie to me? Why, of all the things you could have stuffed and put in my crib, why didn't you just put like a crab in there or something? <laughs> why well, did you put a freaking, why did you put a bison and a bear in there? Like, why did you choose that? And we'll have to say, Huh. That's a good point, man. And you know, I I wrote this the other day that a wildlife, a wild space life is not an easy one. Yeah. You know, for folks who have sat out and watched elk in the rut or have watched horses at a watering hole or even watched does get after it. Yeah. I mean, it's rugged out there. Yeah. You know, I mean it is it's a game, it's a it's a margin of inches and centimeters and and drips of water and leaves and yeah. you know, bites of food. Um, and it's not, yeah, it's not Disney World. It's not Disneyland. Um, well, that's what I think. My uh, Another thing with my son, my wife's like, hey, we want to go to the zoo. I said, I'll let you go to the zoo. Not that I control you. <laughs> I want to go to the zoo and my our son has fun there for now. He's not even two yet. That's great. Feed the goats, whatever. But let's watch it when we get <laughs> we get to the point where he understands what these animals really are. Right. Because, and that's a good, I feel like it's a good segue or a good way to mash together what wild animals are and what those that are living in captivity are. Those animals are more accessible to us. We've taken away their wildness. That doesn't necessarily make those animals happier or healthier. Right. It makes them sick. Uh, and so this, this, why not embrace the wild? Like, how wild it is and how complicated it is and how it asks things of us as participants in it that 
can be difficult because living in the wild is difficult, but you can't take that away from a, a lion, put it in the zoo and say, oh, we'll be happy now. Right. We took away the wild. <laughs> Nobody will try to eat it in there. <laughs> yeah. And that, that lion's like, fuck you. Yeah. I would l- rather be out there trying to get eaten by something. Well, and I think you see the horses in the holding facility, you know, and you see them and it's like, okay, they're safe. They have water. They have food. That life's got to suck. Yeah. You know, I mean, life in the wild isn't much easier, but I don't know. I think if those horses could talk, they'd probably vote for an option in the wild. And if the bears could talk, they'd be like, stop putting me in the stuffed <laughs> animal, you asshole. Because <laughs> yeah. I'll eat you. And you come up you come up here trying to feed me, and then I have to eat you because I'm a bear, and then you shoot me. Stop it. Well, and I, like, it's that idea of, of, of ambassadors, really. You know, it's something that um, a good friend of mine, Chris Burkhardt, people maybe listening know of he's a photographer uh really great substantial one yeah yeah great guy you know he and i were having a conversation about yosemite and it's like okay how do we talk about yosemite is it wild is it wilderness how you know the valley because i know the upcountry is different um but you know we 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 came up with this idea that it's kind of like the sacrificial lamb that it's this ambassador for wild places that while the average visitor like myself maybe will complain about the traffic and the people and the cement paths and you know this and that and the other the beautiful thing about a place like yosemite is that every day thousands of people go to yosemite and have an epic outdoor experience they go back to their communities across the globe with a new benchmark for epic nature and they in some way to some degree i would imagine have some sort of deeper connection with the natural world Mm. Just like the bear in the zoo or the horse in my backyard, they're kind of ambassadors for these wilder things. And in the same through the same lens, that's what excites me about the hunting space. You know, I grew up hunting. I've hunted a little bit. I'm mainly a wildlife nerd who eats meat and enjoys going out and trying to get some. I do think that one of the things that's been intriguing to me about the hunting space is that there are a lot of people out there, yourself included, who I think are amazing ambassadors for the right story. Mm. The story that helps solve the PR crisis that I think has been troublesome in the hunting space. Sure. Narratives that challenge all the BS that gets published, the worst examples that gets published, and reminding people that there's a lot of really good humans out there doing their best with an open mind and open heart, interested in asking questions, interested in being compassionate, interested in doing the best they can on the land and just trying to go about it in the best way. And yeah. it's like, we're better off showing them the best examples of our community as opposed to talking shit and saying like, look how bad this person is or yeah. look how they could have done that better. And that's something for me that recently came up because I I got into a situation not long ago where I was in a bunch of, like in a group of people that were all honey industry people and I found us just churning through like, oh, that guy, ah. <laughs> like, Oh, we all kind of agreed on, you know, the judgments we were throwing out there. What'd but, you say uh, about me? I was like, Charles Post, <laughs> too handsome. <laughs> that guy's a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> nerd. Get out, of, get out of here. But I found myself like, oh man, here's a bunch of people, smart, influential, understand hunting, compassionate, good people, but are getting caught up in like, just, I mean, maybe it's just an interesting conversation to have about people. And the rumor, I was like, man, I got to get away from that. That's one. Two, when one of these damn lady killed a giraffe stories comes up, 
and and just like the the gun uh, the mass shootings comes up this is a storyline that we've all heard before right right so so lady kills giraffe sits in front of giraffe takes photo people get mad that's a storyline we've always discussed we've been there we've done that i think this you think this i ignore i have to ignore that like going forward in my life right. not that i did in the past cuz as a writer and a journalist i'm like well that's a great uh, I could write a story on that. People might click on it. Yeah. Woo. Um, but now it's just like, I'm going to be over here pulling and maybe wild horses, although not as compelling as lady with giraffe <laughs> <laughs> is a better way to spend my time and a more positive way to pull the rope towards me. Yeah. Um, and maybe if as soon as I start engaging in some ridiculous bullshit argument with somebody about a giraffe and it, you know how it always goes. She's like, Hey, she shouldn't have shot that giraffe. You're like, well, giraffes? That was an old giraffe, man. <laughs> like, you've never even seen a giraffe. <laughs> it was well, eight. Look at the stripes. Yeah, man. Look, it was an old giraffe. Be like, listen, go away. <laughs> I'm over here learning and experiencing and doing the things that are important. You're over there looking at a giraffe somebody shot in Africa and getting mad. Like, no. And it, even if you win that argument or I win that argument or whatever happens, None of us have ever have done anything to pull the rope right. to the right right side. And this is just a tug of war taking on that's just taking our time. I fed a giraffe once. They have purple tongues. They do? Yeah. I've seen one. In fact, I was in Africa. I saw one. And I was so you're my, an expert. Tell yeah. us about Africa. No, I was with my mom. Oh, okay. And she cried and she saw it. She oh, was wow. so struck by it. And I thought, well, let's. And then we decided, they were like, well, we were hunting. Giraffes? They, not giraffes. <laughs> And the guy goes, well, you can shoot a giraffe if you want. I'm like, well, I'm aware of that. That I. You're like, well, my mom's crying about how impactful yeah. this. You see my is. mom, asshole. She's crying. It's my mom. I don't shoot things We're that make my pictures. mom. Yeah, I don't shoot things that make my mom cry. Okay, buddy. But that's like, well, it's 1750. That's how much it costs to kill that. Yeah, and his thing. name's George. Yeah, he sleeps over but there. But he's old. Don't worry. So if you take a picture with yeah. him, he's still be He's believe. a dick. Yeah, all the other giraffes. Oh, headbutting all the giraffes. Eating all the tops of the trees. <laughs> we love, but that, yeah, that those things are just. I think maybe with wildlife, if you, if you tell yourself, "I want to understand the entirety of this thing," or at least when I get down to a certain species or a certain problem, right? Just like wild horses, let me understand the entirety of this thing from the the perspective of compassion, as you said, perspective of leaning on the biologists, leaning on the ecologists, leaning on the people that are doing it, trusting their opinions. And letting them do their work. Like all those things come together to be the best thing for the animal. Saving all of them is never the best thing that I found. Right. Killing all of them is never the best thing I've found. But there's some weird middle ground that we should strive to live in. Totally. That would be helpful. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I think kind of I guess changed the way I thought about some of these wildlife issues was spending time in South Texas. Yeah. So Ben and I went down there two years ago and we were staying on a ranch um, kind of near Falfurious. You've been there. Yeah. Not been there, but I know. So there's a lot it's of, out there. a lot of fracking out there, a lot of shell country. Um, and we're staying with friends of friends, wonderful family. Uh, if they're listening, thank you for having us. Um, and I was talking to the mom, you know, and it's this huge spread, um, you know, mesquite kind of this new country for me. I'd never, never been out there before. So pretty intrigued, tons of pigs, tons yeah. of deer. Um, you know, the family loves to hunt. Uh, they also had a lot of fracking going on. 
And I talked to the mom one day, you know, being somebody who I think a lot of people would been as kind of like a hippie to start with, you know, yeah. UC Berkeley, 10 years, California, surfer, whatever. Um, call me what you will. I'm totally intrigued by that middle ground. I'm totally intrigued by other people's realities. And I asked her, I was like, hey, how does like, I don't know anything about fracking. I've like read a bunch of papers about it. I've like listened to professors talk about it. Uh, I don't know anything about it personally. I t- like you own this land. How does it like, what's the deal? How does it make you feel? She's like, well, if you look out there, that little guest house you got to stay in, that was my family's homestead. Uh, that was their their main house. And they scraped a living together, running a few cattle, probably Corriente. Uh, never really got ahead. It's a tough life. You know, South Texas is hot. It's rugged. There's not a lot out there. Yeah, I mean, there is. is, but it's, it's a rough it's place a to rugged live. rugged landscape. So she says, okay, so imagine this. You know, you own all this land. Somebody knocks on the door and says, we're going to pay you guys this much every month for this many years. And it's going to change your life. And she's thinking about her family. She's thinking about her future. And she says yes. And everybody has their own opinion. I don't know what I would, you know, I'm not going to make an opinion on it. But that's what she did. With that, it's changed their family's life. She's now one of the main people in that part of the state that holds uh, migratory pollinator kind of events where people come out to their ranch and they document songbirds and migrating monarchs and they're constantly working to restore the ecosystem to be more friendly to migrating pollinators. And she was like this total butterfly nerd and totally passionate about it and totally passionate about songbirds and creating habitat and managing the wildlife. And she wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't accept that opportunity. You know, one's not better than the other, but that's somebody's reality. And she is going about her reality in, I think, a pretty awesome way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to say, like, oh, man, she's fracking. That's shitty, you know. But she's a good – She, I met her. She's a great person. And she is using some of that financial latitude to do something yeah. that needs to be done, you know, which is, like, being mindful of the fact that pollinators are in decline, migrating monarchs are in decline. And she has a small role in that huge narrative, which I think is an important one. Yeah. Well, what – that – almost bleeds into like in a strange way you go north to utah and you look at bear's ears and you're like kind of similar to that yeah like there's a place that's sacred to a lot of people it's sacred to one side because of its the glory of the way it looks in the in the landscape and even on the native side how they how they view it in their culture but then it's really (laughs) for the other side they're like we get some money out of that thing like yeah we need that stuff. That's right. a cons- there's a consumption that we have to drive, and there's some over there. We'd like to get it. Um, same for that lady. I mean, you have to have it. If the government was a person, if the government was that lady, the government has to make that choice. One side would choose fracking. One side would choose, you know, butterfly preserve. Right. Um, even for the government, fracking money, you know, national monument costs. Yeah. Um, and and there are some. So there's both sides of that. And it's and, hard because like how do you how do you how do we, you know, you and I have our own set of ideals and experiences and and uh kind of intuitions, but like how do you put a value? Like how do how it's hard, like how do you judge that? Yeah. You know, I mean how do you judge the native uh Alaskan who is advocating for a road to be built to their 
their remote village that goes through caribou migra- migratory grounds and their gallon of milk is going to go from 12 bucks a gallon to three because they can drive the nine hours to Fairbanks. Yeah. You know, like how it's, it's tough. I could see it both ways. I could see, I could see like the history of, I can see one way saying we don't need any more roads, right? Cause if you follow that one guy's line of thinking, I need a road to make my milk. If everybody's milk gets cheaper, our landscapes get destroyed. Right. So we have all, flying cars. See, flying <laughs> car guy, call in. I know there's no calling way, but write in, write me a letter. Like flying car guy, I need you. If, you think of flying cars, there would be no roads, or would there be like floating cones then? Probably floating cones, but then they'd probably like run out of batteries and they'd crash in the water and then pollute the water. Right, the floating cones would probably have to run on some sort of biodiesel shit. Yeah, soy or something. That's probably why. Anyway, <laughs> if, we, if we said, "Hey, guy." You need cheaper milk. We're going to do that for you. That's your choice. We're going to do. We're going to make that. If every guy that needs cheaper milk gets a road, then our environment fucking loses. Right. But if every road doesn't get built, then the people that rely on that environment lose. Right. So, shitty situation. Well, so it it makes me think about E.O. Wilson's half Earth hypothesis. E.O. Wilson's probably the most famous, in my nerdy opinion, extant living conservation biologist. He's a Harvard professor emeritus, just total legend. He, one of his theories is that in order for humanity to exist long term, we need to set aside half of the planet for wildlife and and ecosystems. He thinks there's hope. With that mindset, I think it's a pretty awesome idea. Um, with that mindset, you know, we'd look at the guy who wants cheaper milk, and we'd look at the other dude who wants cheaper milk, and we'd say, what is the ecological value? And what is the impact, the net impact? So me personally, and maybe I'll get hate mail for this, I see the bear's ears thing, which is important and has a lot of value placed. But if we took all that inertia that was being put into saving a monument that has mining operation and grazing operations and recreation and cars and roads and a lot of impact, if we took all that inertia and applied it towards ANWR, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or to the National Oil and Gas Refuge uh, reserve, which is next to Anwar, which is the largest piece of public land in America. It's the most remote. The there is a place in that ref in that reserve that is more remote than than certainly Yellowstone, but it's the most remote place in America. We should put all that energy into saving that place because the ecological system there is pretty pristine, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to save. So it's easy, I think, for folks to get drawn into these clickbait wolves. Yeah, horses, save it all. Save know. it all. Fuck it all. Yeah, you know, but we just need to be. I think. I think the move is to be thoughtful to say, like, "Hey, look, if we're going to save something, we can't begin to compare bear's ears to Anwar. Totally different things. What's our goal? If our goal is saving ecosystems, we got to save Anwar. If our goal is to honor uh, and preserve Native American culture, already fucked that up. Already fucked that up. But that's obviously something that's a little bit more. And maybe I'm naive to say that, but it seems like that's a big part of the the bears' ears. Yes, for sure, topic. it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to draw the comparison, but way high level, the fracking lady in Texas is is making some at some level the same decision right. that our country, our government, is making on that landscape. Do we take the stuff out we want and? possibly harm this place and profit from it as a society or do we leave it um that's an interesting one and so i for half earth do we get to go to the other half and hunt no we do uh vr virtual reality google with the little goggles 
I don't like that. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'll talk to EO about <laughs> yeah. that. I think that you, yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but I think the idea of sustainable hunting and sustainable ecotourism. I mean, it's just like you see these people with photos of uh, of the uh, whale sharks. Mm-hmm. You know, there are examples of. Uh, ecotourism opportunities to see whale sharks that I think have a pretty low impact. And there's a lot of opportunities like in the Philippines where they're just dumping uh, dried shrimp in the water and there's 80 boats and the whale sharks are not kind of stoked. So there's good and there's bad examples. And I think just back to hunting, you know, like there are more white-tailed deer in America today than there ever have been. To kill a white-tailed deer is, if that's something that's available to you and you have the means to do it, and you're interested and you eat meat, that is, you cannot argue that the net impact of that harvest and what you would gain from just a caloric standpoint is far better than definitely ordering meat from getting meat from the market. And in some cases, buying apples. Like if you don't live in California in the fall, you're getting apples from Washington, shipped from California, Chile, if it's, if it's, you know, the winter. I mean, Think about that. You're getting an apple that's grown probably with pesticides on an ecosystem far away, put on a plane, flown to you, some cases wrapped in plastic, you know, I mean, and it's all about, I think, looking at what's available. Like I felt so honored and lucky to be able to harvest that elk because not only do I have, you know, well over a hundred pounds of meat, but there's all the benefits of realizing that like I shot that less than an hour from my house. Yeah. It was butchered by my fiance's uncle. Uh, it's that animal lived an amazing life on public land. It died quickly and it's kept me fed. My friends fed. And it's oh, been yeah. this amazing, amazing reminder of like how that little unit, which is not a national park, not a state park, not a national monument. Frankly, it looks like nothing from the trail is my favorite piece of public land in America. Yeah. And yeah. If that place was going to be destroyed or impacted or if there was some threat, I and probably a bunch of other people would be out there. But yeah, go nuts. You know? Well, in hunting, I think it's like, to me, the outside world, if the outside world was a swimming pool, if you go climb, it's like, you know, sitting up to your waist. You're in it. Yeah. You're not really in it. You're not really doing, like, you're in it. Hunting's like diving in. Right. Like now you're in it. Now you're part of the give and take. Now you're part of all that stuff. And then you dive in, you're like, damn, I want to swim deeper. Shit, I got to swim even more deeper. Now I can just, I don't even need to breathe anymore. This is just the way I am. And I like, that's why it's so different for people. If you've never dipped your toe in that pool, diving in seems like a long ways away from just like, oh, that's nice. And that's why you said like as, as ambassadors for the outdoors, Place like Yellowstone are important for people to be like, whoa, that's cool. Right. That's an elk. And then conversations like this one. Oh, man. All right. I could kill that elk, but I could have still have compassion and care for it. And they could be nuanced. Hmm. Okay. Maybe I might try that. And then that person goes and tries and they, they teach that method to their kids. I mean, maybe, maybe the modern sport hunter just had it wrong from the beginning. Like maybe the modern sport hunter somewhere in the 40s or the 50s fucked it up right and there was a whole legacy of my grandfather and my father teaching me a way that wasn't sustainable for now totally and i think not their fault by the way yeah love love you dad (laughs) 
And I'm sure there's things that we're thinking now that aren't sustainable for the future even then. But like somewhere along the way, we made that pool seem like it was not, you know, it was it wasn't very swimmable. We made it seem to the regular person who's never been in it. I don't know where that happened. Well, I think that's the beauty of like history, right? Like hindsight's twenty twenty, and foresight's a lot less than that, you know. And to your point, I think back then, like you can't necessarily blame the trappers. No, like my grandfather hunted wolves because there was a bounty on him, and he was a Harvard trained forester. He loved the woods as much as anybody. I don't think he would have thought in fifty years you would have an environmental situation like we have today. There's also, I think a point worth making, which is that the currency that the hunting community or the outdoor community or the wildlife active, you know, uh, advocacy community, the, 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 the outstanding currency I think can be improved, mm-hmm. whether it's the outdoor space to, uh, to offer praise around athletic feet is worthy, but I think there's there's a lot of room for stewardship as well. The hunting space, the adventure, the hunt is what draws a lot of people into to that world that mm-hmm. gets them to dive in. Oftentimes, the hunt is take is given a backseat to the trophy shot. The trophy shots can be done across the spectrum of could have done better and pretty mindful. I think, and what excites me about working, uh, you know, with working, being an editor at Modern Huntsman, being a conservation advisor at Sitka, is that there is an opportunity to place value on a new model of currency. Yeah. To say that we, as people in the industry, as people in your community, as your neighbors, as people who are interested and care about the things you're interested in care about, we value this type of narrative we value this type of curiosity this type of hunt this approach to storytelling and i think through that our kids and our grandkids might be able to look back and say like that was pretty cool you know they like push the needle in a cool direction because we have so much knowledge and so much so many resources that our grandparents just didn't have yeah shit yeah you know like the internet for one al gore invented it yeah thanks al you know (laughs) yeah and i wouldn't never be say that never be as foolish to think like we're somehow better than them it's not the case case is the way the world and society has shifted maybe the place we started wasn't the right place for the shift that happened doesn't mean anything along that way was done you know with ill intent or whatever like that but i i do think that's um a huge part of this conversation and and points well made and i think we've we've gone an hour and 46 minutes (laughs) (laughs) somewhere my child is in bozeman crying (laughs) (laughs) Eating its third cone of ice cream. That's right. He was getting pizza, I think. Oh, was he? Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, check out all of Sitka's conservation projects. Yep. There's uh, a lot of stuff we're working on. Read so, Modern Huntsman. Read Modern Huntsman. Um, watch for these films that are coming out on wild horses and also on um, uh, sheep in Texas. Yeah. Thanks to... You helped us out with that. Yeah, I did. The Yeti sponsored that. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. And you can... Learn more about my nerdy escapades, Charles Post, uh, Charles underscore Post on Instagram. There, I mean, it's not. I mean, for a nerd, <laughs> you're pretty cool. You know what I'm saying? Oh, thanks. You're no problem. <laughs> Celebrate. It's funny because I, I took Rachel. Uh, I play. I have a film, Sky Migrations. It's yeah. on uh, the Banff World Tour. And 
uh, Wild and Scenic, a few others, and it played at Berkeley. And I was like, oh, I get to take her to my like, you know, stopping. <laughs> She's from Montana. She'll love it. And I took, I, I walked her to the libraries where I used to study because those are my favorite places. Like, oh, that was my desk. Anyway, don't make fun of me if you actually listen to this. And she, she was like, well, thanks for the tours of the library. <laughs> yeah. Let's get out of here. Where are you going to take me next? Hmm? The other Salad library. Salad bar. <laughs> oh, great. So, cool, man. Yeah, well, thank for, you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was awesome a lot of fun. Again. Stoked for neighbors. Oh, we are cups and string. Or walkie-talkies. Hey, um, breaking news. I'm moving to Bozeman. It's awesome. Don't move here. Don't move here. Nobody else. (laughs) Okay, bye. See ya. That's it. That is all. Episode number 20 of the books. So thank you to Rachel and Charles for having me out to their place in Bozeman, Montana. And to Charles especially for the great conversation. Hopefully you will continue to follow Charles. Look him up on Instagram. Look Look up all his media projects and film projects. All those are worthy of your time. And if you're a hunter, he's got a perspective you need to know. And he could be a true conservation ambassador, and a true ambassador for science-based conservation as well. Until next time, for episode number 21, where we'll be joined by Sam Soholt and Jason Matzinger, go to the huntingcollective.com. There's articles there, there's podcasts there, all kind of stuff there that you can go take a look at. The last couple of podcasts from Ben shed crazy Dentamonte and others so enjoy those and we'll see you next week Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels it can also generate income in both the near and long term like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across america enough dreaming about it land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space